and the, he brings them into the wilderness of Sinai. Actually, to a place called Mount Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai. And there he makes a covenant with the people. And he covenants with them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you up out of the house of slavery. And then he said, you have no other gods but me. You will not make for yourself a carved image. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You will remember the Sabbath day. You will honor your father and mother. You will not murder. You will not commit adultery. You will not steal. You will not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is my covenant with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. These are the terms of the covenant. And then we get to the book of Leviticus and we just see all these laws. And we think, what in the world? And then we get to the book of Leviticus we see that God tells his people, you will be holy because I am holy. In other words, we made a covenant. These are the terms of the covenant. You are to be holy as I am holy. Here's how you are holy in my sight, by keeping these commandments. In other words, how do redeemed, how do redeemed slaves live in a covenant relationship with the Holy God? That's explained in the book of Leviticus. And then we come to the book of Numbers, and it is how this group, this covenant people, move, are going to move from the wilderness of Sinai into the land of promise. God has promised to take them to a land that he has promised to Abraham, and now we're going to see how does this community move from Sinai to the land of promise. And so Numbers highlights how the laws of Leviticus the purity laws of Leviticus get lived out and enacted in real life. It's one thing to read them on the paper. It's another thing to, read, to actually live them out in real life. And the book of Numbers is very practical because it's how they lived out their covenant commitment um, as they moved from um, wilderness to promise. So the story so far in the book of Numbers uh, is that the people have been counted and arranged. And so um, the book of Numbers is called the English Numbers because there's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of counting. There's a lot of censuses. Um, we've entitled the book um, um, In the Wilderness because that's actually the first, first words of the book in Hebrew is In the Wilderness. So we're calling it In the Wilderness. But the people have been counted. They're arranged for travel. One of the significant things about the arrangement for travel is that God is in the center of everything they do. Whether they're stationary or on the move, God is in the middle of everything they do. Everything they do, God is central. So that's, that's a huge issue. And then we see that the Levites and priests have been commissioned, and their job is to serve, um, really to protect the unholy from having contact with the Holy God. So they serve in a way as a fence. God is in the middle. The Levites and the priests surrounded this tabernacle where God was, and they protected um, anything from unclean entering into the presence of God in an unworthy state because a person approached God was holy, they would die. So the Levites and priests served as a fence. They served as mediators, the active mediators. They went between God and man. They offered sacrifices and prayers. And then the last time we saw some rules that would come about for um, the inevitable defilement. I mean, people aren't going to stay perfectly clean and righteous. And so what do you do when things happen? What do you do with people who have, uh, who have become defiled, ceremonially defiled? And we looked at that last week. And so today, as we preview, we're going to look at this very interesting battle of the Nazarite. The Valley of the Nazarite is because actually continues the theme of holiness. They're in the wilderness of Sinai, chapters 1 through 10. We're going to look at them in the wilderness of Sinai before they, this is preparing them to move. They're not on the move yet. They're not traveling yet. God is just preparing them to move. And so this Valley of the Nazarite then continues the theme of holiness. Um, and, um, and so we're going to see that theme go on through chapter 10. But the Nazarite vow is what we're going to look at today. So we're going to answer a few questions. And I guess, first of all, what is this Nazarite vow? And I suppose the next question is, what relevance does the Nazarite vow have for us today? And so, um, I hope you address both of those questions, maybe more, but certainly those two questions are. Let's begin with the Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Let me read verses 1 through 8, and then um, we'll spend some time looking at this. Listen to God's glorious word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Neither a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate himself from the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine and strong drink. He shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried all the days of the separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds of the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his, hair, of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even of his father or mother, or the brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because the separation to God is on his head. All the days of the separation, he is holy to the Lord. So this is the vow. This is the Nazarite vow. And let me just maybe 
talk a little bit about these terms, uh, Nazir and Nazirite, um, really is just a noun form of the verb to be consecrated, so it's a consecrated one. And we see this word Nazir, which is the verb form of Nazir, which is the noun form, but Nazir is to consecrate, and Nazir is one who is consecrated or separated or set apart. So the Nazirite vow then is one who is consecrated, one who is set apart. And what we really want to point out is note what uh, this is setting apart. It says to separate himself to the Lord. So in other words, the one is consecrated to the Lord. They are set apart. They set themselves apart for God's use. They are setting themselves apart to be consecrated, to glorify God. For the term of this vow, my goal is that God be glorified. My life is going to be um, set apart, consecrated for the purpose of honoring God and making much of Him. That's what this vow is about. I'm consecrated to God. So now that we have a basic understanding of the term of Nazarite and this vow, it is one who separated or consecrated himself to God for a specific period of time um, for God's purposes, for God's use. Let me just very quickly run through some of the features of this vow and then we'll look at the elements and, and uh, uh, why. The, the, the elements are important. So just a few, a quick run through some of the features. Number one, it is a unique vow. In fact, it tells us so. When you make, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, this is a, vows were really common in the ancient Near East. They were very common in Israel. They were very common to Israel's pagan neighbors. Um, vows were, were, were common, but this one is very different. It is unlike other vows. And so this is a special vow. It is a unique vow. It is also a voluntary vow. That is, it flows from one's desire to honor the Lord. It is not required. Nobody has to take this vow. It was strictly voluntary. If you were a Levite, if you were born into the family of Levite, you were commissioned to serve the Lord. You were set apart by the Lord. You had no, no, Decision to make. You are a Levite. You are set apart for the Lord. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'll be a carpenter. No, you are a Levite. But this vow is somebody who is not a Levite who decides that I'm going to spend a period of time honoring God, and it is purely voluntary. It is also personal. Um, that is, we will note that it is for both male and female, and it is for an individual who is not for a family or for a group or for a tribe or for a clan. It is an individual, male or female, who desires to set themselves apart for God's purposes. So it is unique. It is voluntary. It is personal. And it is public. And I'll spend a little bit more time with this. In other words, everybody knew who the Nazarites were. You could not hide being a Nazarite. It was very public. And then finally, it was temporary. That it was for a period of time, perhaps, perhaps for a year or two years, or even three years or five years, we should be seeing. In fact, um, most would think that when Paul enters the temple, later on in the book of Acts, I'm thinking Acts 20, probably later than that, but Paul goes into the temple to um, finish a vow, and many people say that it was a Nazarite vow that he was finishing up. So it was temporary. There might be two exceptions. Well, there are two exceptions in the Bible. Two individuals had a lifetime Nazarite. Anybody uh, probably in the notes? So I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> Just read your notes. Samson and uh, uh, Samuel. And uh, so Samson wasn't a very good Nazarite, but nevertheless, he's a Nazarite. He's a complex figure. Some people put forth that maybe John the Baptist was a Nazarite. I, I'm not convinced. Um, if some of you are, maybe at the church, but unfortunately, convinced me that John the Baptist was a Nazarite, but um, I don't think he was, but some people say he was. So there are some people who are lifelong Nazarites, but most of the time, it was a temporary vow. All right, so let's look at some of the elements then. Some of the elements of being a Nazarite, one of the things I want to point out very quickly is that they are very similar to, um, to what was required of a priest. They're actually a little more restrictive than uh, priestly requirements, but in essence, um, this person is setting themselves apart to God, they are pretty much functioning in many ways as a lay priest. Um, they are not a priest, they don't offer sacrifices, they don't enter into the tabernacle, but in many ways they are functioning as a lay priest. And the elements, the first element is no fruit of the vine. So, no grapes, no wine, not even the seed of a grape or the skin of a grape. Now, of course, our first question is, well, that's interesting, why? Well, there's, uh, I think, a couple of reasons, a couple of reasons why this would have been part of the vow. And the first one is that grapes and wine are always a symbol of joy. Um, in fact, uh, when they were spying out the land, they were thinking they did, they brought, forth, um, they, they brought back a, uh, um, they brought back grapes. The grapes were a symbol of joy. And basically, this is, a, this is abstaining from the common pleasures of life, saying that God, is, um, that God is sufficient. But I think more importantly, and I think um, even more relevant, is that grapes are a sign of permanency. The vineyards are a sign of permanency. One of the things you might want to read later in Jeremiah 35, you're going to see a group of the Rechabites, and they were nomads, and they were uh, commended for um, not partaking of the fruit of the vine. But here's the bottom line, nomads don't grow grapes. 
those are the poor in home. Those who are just passing through do not plant vineyards. And so the uh, abstaining, because it's not just abstaining from wine or grape juice, it is abstaining from the seed of a grape and the skin of a grape. It is everything that has to do with the vineyard. Abstain from these things because nomads don't grow grapes. Those who have no permanent home, those who are just passing through, do not plant vineyards. And so the Nazarite then is a picture um, that this world is not my home. I am a nomad. I want the life to come more than I want the temporal joys of this life. And so they refrain from these things as a picture that um, they're just passing through. But the luxuries and the pleasures of this life, while awesome, are not my greatest focus. So that's the first thing that they were forbidden from, from the fruit of the vine. The second thing they were forbidden to do is they weren't allowed to get a haircut. My last Why? Thank you. Well, hair indeed is a, is a reminder of life and vitality. What I research, hair even briefly continues to grow after you are dead. It is a symbol of life and vitality. And as we get older, we notice that it grows in rather unusual places. But it continues to grow. And so, this became a very public thing, because not only were they not allowed to get a haircut, on the priests were, were called to grow their hair out, but they were allowed to trim their hair, not the Nazarite. It was just to grow. In other words, when you saw a Nazarite, you knew. There was no hiding a Nazarite. It is very public. The Nazarite vow was public, and everybody knew who the Nazarite was. The Nazarite is saying, I belong to God. And I don't care who knows, the Nazarite stands out. I'm consecrated to God, and everybody knows it. And then finally, the Nazarite had no contact with the dead. Now, we should note that all people were forbidden from contacting the dead, but exemptions were made. I mean, if you had to go bury your family, um, you were permitted to go bury your family. But the Nazarite had this extreme separation from the realm of the dead. Even a family member, even if mother or father or brother and sister died, the Nazarite, he or she, was not allowed to have contact with the dead. And here, we see that the Nazarite mirrors that the relationship with God is of greatest importance, even of greater importance than family. So let me just give you a quick summary. No, I don't think it's going to be that quick, but let me give you a summary. The Nazarite, then, exemplifies the one who affirms that this world is not my home. He, she, the, the Nazarite, is kingdom-minded, and is one who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and understands that all things will be added unto him. I desire God more than I desire the pleasures and the comforts of this life. It's an understanding that God knows what I need, and I will seek God first. He is of my primary importance. You should note that also the Nazarite does not blend in. No attempt is made to look like the surrounding culture. At the end of his vow, what he did was he would cut his hair, and then he would offer his hair, that, that, that symbol of life and vitality, he would offer that symbol of life and vitality on the altar, and it would be burned as a sacrifice. It was, the symbol of life is offered as a sacrifice. You should note that Romans 12 tells us that we should not be conformed to this world, but that we should be transformed, and that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are not to be conformed to the world. And then finally, the Nazarite prioritized God over family. And Jesus himself said that he is of greater importance, even more important than father or mother. And so we see that while this is a very ancient vow, and we think of what relevance does a Nazarite have for me today, we can see these things get picked up in the New Testament, these things get picked up by Christ, who says that I am more important than even your family members. That you are not to be conformed to this world. You are not seeking to look like everybody else. It is not our goal to be cool. We are different. It is not our goal to hide and be and to kind of nail in. Our goal is to be separate and distinct and not like the world that draws attention to us. The fact that we are different. And then finally, we are recognizing that this world is not our home. That we are, that we are nomads passing through, and that the comforts and joys of this life are appreciated are to be subject to the beauty and the glory of Christ. One of the things that I mentioned is that the Nazarite, in many ways, became a lay priest. And we find something very interesting in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. What we see is that God called his people. God calls his people to be a kingdom of priests, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So that a Nazarite then is a mirror or a picture of how God calls his people to live. In other words, somebody says, I wonder what God wants most of us. He appointed the Nazarite to there. That's what God wants, right there. There's a Nazarite. He's a picture of what God has called his people to be and how they are to live. We are priests. We are a holy nation. We are set apart for God's purposes. And I find it so interesting that when we get to the New Testament, Peter picks up this theme of a holy nation and a royal priesthood, and he brings it over into the church, and he ties this old covenant community to the church. God has made us a kingdom of priests. We are the picture of Christ. I think I have that First Peter 2.9 uh, passage. There it is. But you hear Peter picking up that theme from Exodus and applying it to his church, to, to um, the new covenant people, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He uses that Exodus language. You are a holy nation. Why? A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a holy nation. You are the, a royal priesthood. Why? To declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the picture of Christ. The new covenant community, the church, is to be a picture of Christ. What does God want? What does God expect of us? What is Christ like? Look at the church. Look at the people in the church. Look at the individuals in the church. Look at how they function. That is how God, that is what God is like. That is what Christ portrays. We are called to be holy. Let me just affirm that holiness is not legalism. One of the things that's interesting is that what the Nazarite forsakes are not sin. Grapes are not sin. But the Nazarite gave up and not sinful things, but good things. And he's saying that God is enough. Now, we love the good things of life, but God is enough. And the good life is not found in what I own. The good life is not found in what I achieve. The good life is having God. There is no life, good or bad, without God. God is the good life. And so I think I would be remiss if I didn't at least bring up the issue of fasting since this is an October fast. And when we abstain from food, in fasting, it is not because it is a sinful thing. In fact, it is a good thing. It is love thing. What we're saying is that my appetite for God is greater than anything else. I desire Him more than I desire a meal. It is a declaration that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And so the Nazarite reflected this idea that God is sufficient. He is all. He is all in all. These other things are good. But they will never satisfy in the way that God satisfies. So that's the, the general idea behind the Nazarite vow. But the text then goes on and talks about the vow being broken in verses 9 through 12. Says, and if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtles down to two pensions to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for sin offering, the other for a birth offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head the same day, and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation, and bring a male lamb and year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void, because the separation was defiled. So now what happens if the vow gets broken? And in this case, what if he inadvertently comes into contact with a dead person? Like he's just kind of hanging out, having a nice time, somebody has a heart attack and dies. Well, now he's defiled. What do you do? This is dealing with the inadvertent contact with the dead. Here's the interesting thing that I saw about this, and one of the interesting things to me, but one of the things that stood out is that this was considered sin. It's inadvertent, but it says, first of all, all of the appropriate sin offerings needed to be offered. Atonement needed to be made. It is called by God a sin. So wait a second. This was inadvertent. I didn't actively do this. It's not like I went out and went to a graveyard and got hung out for the night. I didn't do this on purpose. I'm not to blame for it. It was inadvertent. And yet it's dealing with sin, and all the requisite offerings were required to atone for the sin. This was an unintentional violation of the vow, and yet it was still sin. One of the great things the book of Numbers teaches us is the seriousness of sin. Even unintentional sin requires atonement. I think this is evidence of our fallen nature. Our natural tendency, our natural bent, is to turn away from God. We can sin against Him even without trying. In other words, you don't have to go looking for sin. Our natural tendency, I'll at least speak for myself, but I know most of you well enough that I think that it applies to you, and I think I know human nature well enough to know that this applies pretty much to all human nature, at least all Christians. We trend, our natural trend is toward losing zeal. It's toward a waning passion and, and, a, and an ebbing of love for, for God. It's not like a conscious to choose, but we drift naturally away from God and we get ensnared by the things of this world. 
And so this part about the broken vow reminds us that we've trained, it is our natural bent to move away from God, that we actively, actively are find it necessary to gather together with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. This is one of the means by which we grow and are nurtured. We um, give time for prayer and for fellowship and for um, uh, the study of God's word. These are the things then, um, that, that God has provided for us so to alter that, that natural trend away from God. And I may not go out looking for somebody to slander. And I'll wake up on anyone. Come see us in the slanders me today. I wonder if we can be the target of my vitriol. Awesome. But what I do notice is that without even looking for it, I do not want the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. I just don't. And I don't love my neighbor as myself. In fact, maybe days, time goes by. I don't even know if much about my neighbor. I focus on me. And so we don't need to go looking and actively participating, but we turn away from God. And yet God has given us means by which we can um, reverse that natural tendency. And so there is the vow. There is this idea of what happens when the vow is broken. And then in verses 13 through 21, we see the vow completed. And this is the law of the Nazarite. When the time of the separation has completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering. And one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering. And one lamb, without blemish, as a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread, loads of fine flour, mixed with oil. And unleavened wafers, sweet with oil. And a grain offering, and a drink offering. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and offer his sin offering, and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the lamb as a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord. With the basket of unleavened bread, the priest shall offer also, it's great offering and it's drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled, and one unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the fire that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to, to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. There's much to, uh, to discuss there, and obviously there's this great detailed list of various sacrifices. One of the things that we should notice is how costly the sacrifice was. Um, but two things, notice now, I'm not going to go through all the various sacrifices. Two things really stood out to me in the first one was in verse 13. This is the law of the Nazarite. When the time of the separation is completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And I found that interesting in the sense that he comes to the tent of meeting, but it is the priest who goes to the presence of the Lord. In other words, after all of this, after all of this consecration, after all of this uh, holiness, and separating himself from the good, from giving himself to that God is sufficient, even then, that's not enough to grant him access into the presence of holy God. The priest still needs to go into the presence of God. He is still in need of a mediator, and God is still distant. And then the other thing I noted is at the end of the verse, or at the end of the section, that the Nazarite could have offered more. That what he offers, which is a pretty detailed and very costly offer, but there's more that could be offered. In other words, after all of that, the Nazarite could have done more. What we see is that there needs to be a better mediator and a better sacrifice. Unfortunately, as we read in the person of Christ in the New Testament, that Jesus is the perfect high priest, and he offered a much better sacrifice. He offered himself to God for our sins. Not a new lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering. Not a ram without blemish as a peace offering. Not a basket of unleavened bread. They have been brought in and waved before the Lord. But Jesus died for our sins. He entered into the heavenly tabernacle, and there he presented his blood as an appropriate and sufficient sacrifice, enabling us to enter into the presence of God who will never cast us out. And the great thing, we don't go to the entrance of the tabernacle. We actually can enter into the very presence of a holy God, and he will not cast us out. We will not die. He has made us holy. He is a much better sacrifice. But wait, there's more. Not only do we have, are we bidden to come boldly into the presence of God, God takes another step further. He says, how about this? 
I'll put my Holy Spirit, I'll come in and dwell in you. Not only are you able to come in my presence, but I'm with you, dwelling in you, animating your life, filling you with my spirit. You are mine and I am yours. The spirit of Christ dwelling in us. We needed a better mediator and we needed a better sacrifice, and that's exactly what Jesus offered. We also see that the radical life of the Nazarite and all the sacrifices offered were never sufficient. He was always left outside. And Jesus not only draws us near to God, but because of his works, he makes us the temples of the Holy Spirit, so God now dwells in us. And we also see, despite his radical commitment, there was always something more he could do. It was never sufficient. Well, you could have offered more if you had means. You could have offered more. It was never sufficient. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient, sufficiently sufficient, completely sufficient. There is nothing else that needs to be done. It is finished. Your sins have been forgiven. So the Nazarite, who never could achieve, who could never do enough, in Christ, as in Christ, we also can never do enough. But Christ is sufficient. And if you are in Christ, it is sufficient. So let me ask uh, a brief conclusion. One might ask, do we take a Nazarite back today? My answer would be no. You see, we are set apart. We are set apart as a holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests. We have already been made a, a holy nation, a, a nation of priests, people who are set apart to declare God's praises. And we do that. Yes, we are a kingdom of priests, we are a holy nation, and we are that not by taking a vow, but by receiving the one who was radical enough, who was sufficient enough, who was God in the flesh, who did the work for us, so we receive all the benefits of being a, royal, a holy nation, a royal priest, we are priests of the Most High God, a holy nation, by what merits? By our great high priest who went before us. By receiving him, not by taking a vow, but by receiving him, do we become set apart. Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks. I pray that these words are clear. I know that it can be very difficult, Lord, if we look back at a vow that is 3,500 years old. We wonder what value is that for us today. We look at it the prison of Christ and we see that Christ has fulfilled all of the Old Testament. But on the way to Emmaus, we told the two disciples that and he took them and said that the law and the prophets and the writings and he told them about himself through the law and the prophets and the writings. Lord, we see that your word, all of it, from Genesis on, points us to Christ. I pray, Father God, that we would know the unity to say this week, that we as a church would love one another, that we would stand out, that we would be a people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, set apart to declare his praises. So we give you praise and we give you thanks. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.